As you know, Christmas is on the horizon. But friends, we can only understand the coming of Jesus Christ into this world if we understand that he came to die, that he came with a mission and a purpose. He came to save his people from their sins. And so even though we know that we will be looking at that coming and that birth of Christ in the weeks which are ahead, in one sense it is fitting that we come to this, this week of all weeks as the Lord Jesus makes that final move towards the cross. You know, we'll be singing in due course, Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. And on this occasion that we find in Matthew 21, it seemed, on the surface at least, that there was that receiving of the king, that acclamation of the king. But as we know, the reality was very different. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And that's the great tragedy of this account. There is a great beauty and humility and majesty about it, and yet a tragedy too. And we know that the most important life has ever and will ever be lived is that of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so we need to spend this time looking at this momentous occasion, this entrance into Jerusalem. And we know that it's often called the triumphal entry, and we know that the crowd surrounds Jesus with this adulation, with this excitement, with this acknowledgement of, of majesty. But there is this, this tragic undertone, as we've said. It's a coronation. And yet it's unlike any other worldly coronation. We know that this king is not like any other earthly king. We know that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And there is such humility in his actions and the way in which he approaches this entire situation. And yet at the same time, it demonstrates so clearly that he is who he says he is, that he is Messiah, that he is God's chosen one, that he is the king. You know, the kings of this world, and we have a coronation forthcoming next year, the kings of this world, they want their coronations to make statements and to be you know, grand affairs to emphasize their position and their honor. But this coronation is marked by humility. And yet this king will reign forever and ever. And so let's look at some of these details together that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, brings to us. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 21, and we see that there is a planned approach into Jerusalem. When they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. And we've been looking over recent weeks the way in which Jesus, with a great multitude, is heading towards Jerusalem for the final time from Jericho. And now the hour had finally come. And it was at this Passover that he would offer himself as the Lamb of God to be slain for the sins of his people. And we've been looking in recent times over the way in which the Lord has traveled down uh, and he's been there going through Perea and then to Jericho and then down further to make this final approach, ascent towards Jerusalem. And all the way through, he's been teaching and preaching the kingdom. He's been demonstrating his power, his miracles, miracles of healing and deliverance, lives being changed. And there has been this, this gathering momentum as crowds have, have come together and this crowd is massive now as they are heading to Jerusalem. 
we must not underestimate the sheer size and volume of the people who were with him at this point. Some genuine followers, some curious about him, some heading to Jerusalem and caught up for the Passover. And we see that in the midst of all that's taking place, the Lord Jesus still has time for individuals. We've seen how he saved Zacchaeus. You know, the deliverance of the two blind men that we looked at last Lord's Day, these miracles of grace, these rays of light against the, the darker backdrop of opposition and rejection and unbelief and hatred. And the Lord Jesus keeps showing his power to save, the reality of his person. And no doubt that those who have been saved and brought through, like those two blind men, would now have joined the, the great crowds with Jesus. And so they were climbing up about 3,000 feet to Jerusalem. And uh, we've said before that on the way, the, the crowds would have been able to look across the, the Kidron Valley, and they would have been able to see Jerusalem in the, the distance. They would have even been able to see the eastern gate of the temple. It was a, a glorious scene. And as the crowds reached the, the plateau on the hill, they would have come to a little village called Bethpage, which means House of Figs. And all the while, this momentum is gathering. And that sense amongst the crowd that this, this Jesus is someone special. There would have been an anticipation, a, a, a building. And the disciples would have been affirming him as, as Messiah, that he's the Christ, that he's the, the Son of God. It's interesting, if you look at the other Gospels in John 12, it tells us that when Jesus arrived in the area, that he would have been with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany for a night six days before the Passover, all according to the schedule, all heading towards the cross. And on that occasion at Bethany, there was a supper given for him by his friends to show their love and their kindness. And it's in the midst of that, just in the build-up to what we're looking at this morning, that you have a, a beautiful act of devotion. Because Mary will pour out the most expensive perfume that she has upon the Lord Jesus. And it's a profound moment because she knew that he was going to die. And she wanted to show the depth of her love for her Lord. And her loyalty and affection in the light of his, his coming sorrow and death. One commentator says she entered into what was about to be done to. And by him she anointed him for burial. He was despised and rejected of men. They were about to put him to a terrible death. But before an enemy's hand can be laid upon him, love's hands first anoint him. And so Mary at that moment lays aside everything else. She's taken up with him and she gives him adoration and worship and blessing to the one who was her all in all. Now it's significant because against that act of devotion it drew the reaction, the resentful reaction from Judas. And you can begin to see that descent coming to its climax. And so you have this contrast in John 12 between the worship of Mary and the underlying hatred of Judas. And it reminds us that when Christ is esteemed and valued as he deserves, it will always bring out antagonism from those who are in reality against him. And so we see that happening as these things move on. And Judas, you know, you might remember, he considered the worth of that perfume which was spilt, he considered that a waste. 
the value lost from his own clutches. And his anger is dressed in a supposed spirituality, but his heart is revealed. You see, true love, dear friends, grudges nothing to the Lord Jesus. It sees the Lord Jesus as valuable above everything, that all else is inferior to his worth, to his preciousness. And love for the Lord cannot give him too much. But Judas didn't love the Lord Jesus. He had been with Christ, he'd said the right things, but he didn't know Christ in that saving way. It's a, a sobering thing. You know, maybe you've seen, uh, there's those memes that go around and one says about Judas, he had, you know, the best pastor, the best fellowship and all the rest, and yet he still fell. The reality was his heart was never changed. And it reminds us that even in precious times of worship and fellowship, that the devil always lingers to ruin and to divide and to draw away from Christ. And it's true then and it's true now. And so we have to ask ourselves, where are our hearts? Do we really love Christ? Do we treasure him above all else? Because he is worthy. He is worthy of all of our adoration. And so only days before the cross, the Lamb of God to be the lamb slain for the sins of his people, only days before the appalling suffering and cruelty and loneliness of the cross, there is sweet fellowship with those who love him, and yet the reminder that the battle with the enemy and his servants, those dark spiritual forces, is reaching its peak as well. And so you've got all of these different elements coming together. And so this is the, the final approach the coming to the end of Christ's earthly mission. And so all is to this divine schedule. And then we see that emphasized by Matthew again as he speaks about the prophecy which is fulfilled. Look at verses 1 to 2. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. So all of it is to this divine schedule. All of it in accordance with Scripture. At the right moment, the right ordained time for the Lord Jesus to come to Jerusalem and then to go to the cross. And so the religious leaders, they are plotting to kill him. They don't want to crown him. And yet, there will be a heralding of the Savior. Within all that's going on, God the Father has ordained that there will be this public testimony to the reality that his son is king. And, you know, we rejoice, don't we, when we see these things. You think of, you know, at his birth, he sent angels to the shepherds. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And now he suffers the multitude to hail him as the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the Father ordains that the Son would receive this adulation and this praise. And of course, it would also serve the purpose of setting events in motion that would lead to his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. And so even the sending of these two disciples, which seems really like a side detail, is actually key in triggering the events of this last week. But I want you to see, friends, that the Lord Jesus is always in control. Always. There is never a time when he's not in control. Even as he hung on that cruel cross, 
He yielded up his spirit. He laid down his life. He is no victim of people, as we've already considered today. He's no victim of circumstances, nor the enemy. He is Lord. He was doing the work that his father had given him to do, and he was doing it perfectly. And so he's in control, and he sends these two disciples, and he sends them over to go and look for this donkey. He gives them specific instructions. And he tells them when to go, where to go, immediately to the village opposite. They are to find this donkey. He displays that supernatural knowledge. He's not there. He can't see it physically, but he knows that they'll be there. And he tells them to bring the animals to him. And the Lord Jesus was only borrowing the animals. And he tells the disciples, if anyone asks them about it, they were to say, the Lord has need of them, and that will be enough. That would be enough. And it would suggest that the people in the household knew the Lord. It would suggest that it was a believing home. So if the Lord had need of something, they would immediately and willingly give it to him. They would respond. And there's no further explanation needed. These people will readily, happily submit to the command of the Lord. Nothing was too much for the Lord Jesus. But friends, it also teaches us this. Nothing is hid from the eyes of the Lord Jesus. There are no secrets with him, in public or in private. He is acquainted with all our ways. We are never, as it were, out of his sight. He knows us to the very depth of our being, and that should have a real impact upon us, upon our hearts. He knows you. He knows me. He sees us as we are. Now, we're told in Mark and Luke that the colt he would ride had never been ridden. And that was an Old Testament symbol of special honor. And this humble coronation would see the humble king riding on an animal that had never been ridden in honor. But these different elements, including the colt, were for a much higher purpose. And we're told in verse 4 that it is done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. So it's with that purpose of affirming and fulfilling the word of God, the scriptures. And many, many will be fulfilled over the days of this final week. But here is a significant beginning to this most pivotal of all weeks. Everything that happens is under his control to accomplish this saving purpose, to die on the cross, rise again, to do the work that his father had given him to do to fulfill scripture. And it all comes together most remarkably. And if you look at verse 5, you see there that it says that the prophet says, tell the daughter, that means the inhabitants of Zion, that's symbolic for Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in other words, tell the inhabitants of Jerusalem to behold, to behold the king, to look, to the king who is coming. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. It's incredible. You think that this plan of salvation set in place before the foundation of the world, you think of all the ways in which this had been revealed throughout the Scriptures, and yet now is the time when all of it comes together. Behold your king. 
It's interesting, in Zechariah 9, in the first part of the passage, you have a prophecy about a conqueror who is coming, but it's a human conqueror. I mentioned to you before that many say that it was fulfilled by Alexander the Great. And around 200 years after that prophecy, Alexander the Great undertook a massive campaign and the Lord overruled and used Alexander as a protector of Israel. But verse 9 onwards in Zechariah 9 speaks of Messiah, how he will be unlike that earthly conqueror, he will be the ultimate protector of Israel. And he is described as we read it together earlier. And Zechariah introduces this divine conqueror, this Messiah, and speaks of his character in contrast with the human conqueror in the first part of the passages. You see, the, the human conqueror, Alexander the Great, he would bring war. He was about himself. He was about pride. In many respects, he was a tyrant. He was cruel, and he brought dread. But the king, Messiah, will deserve praise. He will bring peace. He's not a tyrant. He's God's chosen king. He's righteous. He's just. He's kind. He's gracious. He's mighty to save. And more than that, he's willing to humble himself. And he comes not riding a, a white horse, but a lowly donkey. And in that prophecy, as we start to pull it apart, we see the following, that he's Israel's king. The prophecy says, Behold, your king is coming to you. This is God's chosen king, the, the, the rightful heir, the rightful king of Israel, the one that was uh, said that would come from the line of David, and they should have recognized him as such. He's righteous and he's just. He's, he's holy, he's sinless. He, he comes with salvation. He literally comes to reveal himself, to show himself as saviour. This one who establishes righteousness is the one who is pleasing in the sight of God. He is righteous in all his ways. He is perfect. There is none like him. And we see that in every way he fulfilled the law. And he's lowly. This king is humble. He's meek and he'll be riding on a donkey. This humility and meekness demonstrated by riding that particular animal. One explains that the donkey stands out as a deliberate rejection of all symbols of arrogant trust in human might and expresses subservience to the sovereignty of God. Jerusalem's king is of humble manner and yet victorious. And so it has always been that the church of Christ must never and will never effectively spread the gospel by sword or by arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of its king and saviour. And you know, just as the king came and was humble, so we who say that we follow the king must also be humble. We mustn't be about promoting self, only ever Christ. And such is the entrance of this king, one who is righteous, who comes with salvation, who comes not in worldly might but in weakness, such is this king that he will go to a cross in order to save his people. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That's a staggering thing. If you know the Lord Jesus this morning, 
you are rich beyond measure in him. And all because of his humility and his willingness. The Savior said of his own ministry, we've considered it in the last couple of weeks, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What a contrast between King Jesus and every earthly king or leaders. Look at our current leaders. See the great contrast. Earthly kings rule for their own prestige, their own riches, their own glory. But Christ rules for our salvation. Earthly kings reign over people from above in haughty power. But this king condescends to dwell among his own. And here he comes, not as a warlord arriving on a, a great battle steed, ready to marshal his armies. Rather, Jesus comes lowly and sitting on a donkey. And the donkey symbolized, too, that Jesus was coming in peace, not for war, that his was to be a gentle, peaceful reign. And so for this moment, the king comes humbly and in peace. He is the prince of peace. And the message of peace is good news for those who are by nature enemies of God. Friends, whilst there is still time, if you are here this morning and you know that you are still in rebellion against God, then the only way in which you can have peace with God is in Jesus Christ. And you need to know that we are reconciled to God, we are brought to God only through Jesus Christ alone. And you need to know that this is this wonderful gospel age and opportunity now, but it won't be forever like this. Because there are other images of Christ the King in Scripture. In Revelation 19, we have the image of the, the great and awful day when Christ will come again. And again, behold, the King is coming. Only this time, Christ will come on a pure white battle steed, and he will come to judge as King. And then he will come to make war with his enemies and he will conquer all and all who oppose him. And the scriptures say that his robes will be dipped in blood, which probably recalls the warlike figure that is prophesied in Isaiah 63. And with that in mind, we should never forget, friends, and it should be such an encouragement to us that the fulfillment of God's word in the past assures us that his word will be fulfilled in the future. Every prophecy that we see fulfilled should do our hearts good because we know that we can trust the word and we know that what the word says about the future is true. And so we can take great heart. All that has been set in place will come to pass. We must not doubt it. Jesus came and he is coming again. And we are reminded of that here. And so verses 6 to 7, the disciples did as Jesus commanded. They bring the donkey and the colt, lay their clothes on them, and set him on them. The prophecy being fulfilled, Jesus is now put on the colt to ride into Jerusalem. And then we see the, the scene moves along, verses 8 to 9. A very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them. And then multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out. So now we are entering that time when these great crowds come and praise the people. The praise of the people comes to the Lord Jesus. Do you know that precise moment, a moment which also fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel 9 is so rich 
in what it pictures. As the Lamb of God rides into that city, as I've said so many times, you must have it in your mind that thousands of Passover lambs are also being brought into the city to be sacrificed only days later. And these people who are praising, they miss the fact that the ultimate lamb is right there, right there in front of them. And there's a vast number, they come together, the crowds descending with Jesus, those coming out of the city, hundreds of thousands, and Jesus is there in the middle, and they're throwing down their robes to make a path for him to go. 2 Kings 9.13, Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on top of the steps, and they blew trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. And so what happens here for Jesus is a symbol again of submission to one with authority. So they make the way for King Jesus. And in addition, they cut down the the palm trees and they spread them on the road as well as waving them as he passed. And in Revelation, branches are symbols of strength and beauty and the joy of salvation. And the people waving these branches, they are hailing Jesus as the conquering king. It's an incredible scene. Do you know, we saw, didn't we, when the queen passed away, we saw those remarkable processions and we saw the order of them and the majesty of them. And yet here, here is a, a, an entrance and a, a royal procession which is remarkable and the people are ecstatic in their praise. And thoughts of deliverance are high. Passover is near. Messiah, they've got ideas of Messiah bringing deliverance. They want that deliverance from Rome. And they think that Jesus can give them that. And they know that he's greater than Moses. He'd shown it by bringing people back from the dead. So there's this expectation, there's this hope. They tried to make him king before, but now, now's another opportunity. And even though this coronation was unlike any other ruler, the people, they are caught up with it. And they're crying out for him and they're they're extolling him. And they begin to cry and praise, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. They're literally saying, save us now, son of David. The servant of God, deliver us. This rich messianic title. And they're saying, Jesus, you are the fulfillment. That's the words coming from their lips. And the praises were also full of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 113 to 118, which would have been sung as they went up to the temple. Psalm 118 specifically in view, where it says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. Blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord. So they're calling on the Son of David to save them. And they want to be saved from Rome and all their other enemies. And Psalm 118 is also called the the Conqueror's Psalm. And it had been sung in Jerusalem many years earlier when Simon Maccabeus had freed Israel from the Syrians around 100 years before. But they missed that this psalm was full of Christ and even speaks of the stone which the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone. But the people, they're caught up, they're they're crying out, but they're looking for an earthly deliverance. They see it only in terms of what they will get. Friends, you know there are always those who want and design a Jesus as they want him to be. But it's not who he is. 
Jesus didn't come to do as you bid him to do. He didn't come just to be there to fulfill your dreams or to make you prosperous. He didn't come just to give you what you want and whatever your desires be. He came to reveal the truth, to show you your sin, to show you your need, to warn you to flee from the wrath to come. And more, he came to accomplish the salvation that we desperately need. And he did it. That's the most amazing thing. He did it through his perfect life, his death on the cross and his stunning resurrection. He came to confront your sin and your need and to offer to you this gracious salvation through faith in his name. And regardless of the response of the crowd, Jesus had come in the name of the Lord to do the will of his Father. He was the true king. And then as we finish, look at verse 10. We've seen the praise of the people, but we also see the perplexity of the people. When he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? It's incredible, isn't it? They'd just been standing, singing, and, and involved in this apparent worship and praise, and it's been ecstatic, it's been wonderful, and yet they walk away from it and say, who is this? Who is it? Do you know, I fear that there are many who go to worship even today and they get caught up in all manner of things and they walk away and they say, well, who is this? Who is Jesus? And these people, they're moved, they're, they're, they're shaken. And the question is remarkable that for all their excitement, for all their praise, they still don't know him. Who is this? And it's a tragedy. The Messiah, the Savior, he's right there. Prophecy fulfilled in front of their eyes. They'd even rejoiced in his coming and they didn't know him. They didn't know him. Oh, it's a tragedy. And even more shocking in the light of Zechariah's prophecy, we're also told, John 12, 16, his disciples didn't understand these things at first. Even the, the disciples, now, they knew who he was, but they didn't understand why he had entered Jerusalem in such a, a humble manner. But then it goes on to say, and praise God, when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. They were given that understanding. And it was then that they saw that he had to have that humble coronation that he had to die, that he had to rise again. They understood that had to be suffering before glory, the cross before the crown. But for these people, they've been caught up in the, the euphoria of the moment, and then they ask, who is it? And the rumor spread, it's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And the leaders were incensed because it looked as though the people had come right behind him to acclaim him, and then they're thinking, well, if he's being acclaimed, how on earth are we going to kill him? But they need not worry because the crowd was fickle. And more importantly, the Lord Jesus would continue to expose their hypocrisy and the religious system that they'd set in place. The Savior didn't come to overthrow Rome. He did come to expose the false religion that held the people in such bondage. And that would be enough to give them the opportunity to put their hideous plan into action. And as we sang in that lovely hymn, the crowds that were singing one moment Hosanna were then crying crucify. 
And yet it was all part of God's sovereign purpose and plan to save sinners like us. And you know, friends, just in total contrast to the fickleness of the crowd, Christ never changes. Christ's purpose never wavers. And those whom he loves, he loves to the end. And you know, people let us down. People can be one thing one moment, another the next. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you know that question, who is this? You know, that's the question that we all need to face. Who is this? This remarkable event, the king had come into Jerusalem. His focus was the cross. And this morning, you've had these things before you. And you know, you don't need to be in any doubt about who he is. He's the son of God. He's the Lord of glory. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And the question is, do you believe that? Have you humbled yourself before him? Have you realized that you're a sinner and that you need this Savior? And I pray that you would. I pray that the Lord would open your eyes and that he would grant life, that he would give you ears to, to truly hear and that you would turn to him now in this day of grace when his hand of mercy is extended to you. And remember the king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the lowly and gentle one, the one who died on a cross to save a people for himself, to redeem them. Remember he shed his blood and he cried out before his death, it is finished. It is done. And remember that the one who died upon that cross was also buried, but remember that he rose again. And remember that he ascended. And above all, remember that the king who rode on a donkey will one day come again in great glory on a battle stick. And you will face, and I will face, that king of kings in all his glory, in all of his majesty, and we will face him and Give account and what will we plead in that day? That even though you trampled and spat and rejected his name, that you, you know, you tried your best to live a good life and, and that should be enough. Is that your plea? Is that what you'll try and say? Well, I did my best. I, I went to church and, you know, I tried to do good things and I tried to do this, I tried to do that. Friend, all of that will be to no avail. Or will you face him and say, my master and my God, I plead only you, only your righteousness, only your saving blood, only your grace and your merit. Do you know, if that's your only plea, and it's certainly mine, then you'll know his embrace. You won't know his judgment, you'll know his embrace. And you'll know what it is to dwell in his kingdom with him forever. Friend, is he your king? Do you know who he is? This is Jesus, the only savior. And here he is coming, riding into Jerusalem to do that work, the work which saves sinners like us and how we should delight and rejoice and worship him for it, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who's coming again. Amen.